0: About the Midnight
1: storm of bold liberating rock
2: shot through with blues soul and gospel and now your hosts for the show brian jones and jason johannes
3: welcome to another episode of the all things blues and southern rock podcast with me always is jason what's going on today man
1: hey brian it is nice to see you i'm doing a-okay how are you doing
3: good i just got some sweet merch from uh jennifer lynn you and did. Jennifer Lynn in the Groove Revival. I got the Loud and Proud or the Vintage and Vintage, vintage yeah. and Loud Blues Rock Nation t shirt and a Jennifer Lynn in the Groove Merchant's hat. So,
1: and what I like about that shirt is got a replica of a Vox amp, which I used to use a Vox amp, and I know Jennifer plays Vox as we talk right. here, and it's
3: cool. She's got her well, logo where the Vox logo would be.
1: So she knows how to market. She knows how to yeah. market herself and other people, man. So that's oh, good looking merch.
3: She's a smart individual. Yes, Go she out, is.
1: buy her music and buy her merch, Brian.
3: For sure. So what's going on? we got some shows coming up.
1: Well, a big one to announce. Something that Brian, you and I have been waiting to hear what's going on with this band. Of course, we had the legendary drummer on last year. But our, our friend Steve Gorman and the band Trigger Hippie announced the first show of the year, March 11th, 3rd and Lindsley nashville right tennessee and i'm gonna try like heck to go see that show
3: right on and i saw you know there was some chat on it on on our little uh chat group and kate and friends from the state of america to stay tall
1: i think david david from state of america is trying to get uh the crew as many of the crew can go i think monica is looking to go in a bunch of people so I'm, you know, I talked to my wife. I think she wants to go. If I can get some tickets, I will be there.
3: Cool. That would be great. I'm
1: excited, man. Like, I've never seen those guys live. Love them. I know you love them. Mm -hmm. I know they've got a couple other festivals coming up. And hopefully this means they're going to get out and play a little bit more. Maybe, maybe they'll have some new music for us. I have no idea.
3: That would be wonderful. I'm sure they must have stuff in the can, you know, with all this downtime.
1: I hope so. I hope so. We'll reach out to Steve and see if he wants to come back on. talk For about sure. What's going on with that Trigger. would be uh, fantastic. Always happy to talk with him. And, you know, it's a big weekend for sports. Uh, you know, I'm a Cincinnati fan. Talk sports with Steve Gorman. Steve Gorman is a Tennessee Titans fan. And guess what's happening in the NFL playoffs this weekend, Brian? That would be the Bengals
3: against the Titans.
1: The Bengals against the Titans. The, the Bengals had won their first playoff game in 31 years. Now they're on the road in Tennessee. Let's uh, Fingers crossed, man. Fingers crossed. Who day?
3: Yep. There you go.
1: <laughs> it's not sports talk.
3: <laughs> well, that could probably be a good game, you know.
1: I hope so. I hope it's a good game. You know, we need the Bengals to build on the success and, and be ready to win the Super Bowl next year.
3: I don't know how Steve Gorman would uh, feel about me saying this, but aren't like, the, the Titans like a Derrick Henry injury away from being like, meh?
1: <laughs> oh, you know what? When he went out, they definitely struggled a little bit, but yeah. you know, they, they won enough games to get in the playoffs. Sure. And he's He is back for this game. So it is going to be tough sledding for the Bengals, but you know,
3: is that in, well, that's in Tennessee. Right? That is yeah, in Tennessee.
1: Obviously. Yeah. Nissan yeah, a stadium of that are going down there, Nissan okay. stadium. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see what kind of trash is on there. If Steve posts something on Twitter, I'm going to respond. Yeah. <laughs> <I think so. laughs>
3: So, uh, this is not going to be a long, drawn-out intro. We've been doing a shorter lately, so we're just going to go right into uh, talking about our returning guest.
1: Our returning guest, one of our favorite people, he's a journalist, he's an author, he's a musician, and we're going to talk about his his music. Uh, Andy Aldor, he just released a double album, Light of Love, nice mix of acoustic, you know, more mellow stuff, and then hard rock and blues and just regular rock guitar stuff, man. It's a pretty excellent album. So it was good to get him back on to talk about it.
3: And what a joy it is always, you know. And I, I messaged you that last night after we got done talking to him. It's just. He's awesome. Yeah. He's just awesome to He's a nice to. guy.
1: And like, he just has such interesting stories and bits of information to tell. And listen, you guys who are listening to this podcast, you're going to find out which legendary guitarist reach out for guitar lessons from andy in like 2000 blew my mind
3: that's amazing that is really amazing i'm like (laughs) wow yes
1: and a band i really like too so i was like crazy all
3: right well uh we'll let you guys get to this and you will find out who andy did give some guitar lessons to i think you'd be very surprised so sit back and enjoy our conversation with andy aildort (laughs) here at the guest segment of the podcast i always throw it over to jason to tell you guys who we have with us today
1: yep brian as always it's my pleasure to introduce the guest this week it's a returning guest i guess we can call him a veteran of the show he's a journalist more likely know him as a musician he teaches guitar lessons he works does everything he's got a new album out that's why he's back here on the show to talk to us it's mr andy
2: aldor how you doing andy I'm great. It's great to see both you guys. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. Really appreciate it.
1: This Thank one we had Vietnam. to work really hard to get you back <laughs>
2: on. <laughs> man, you guys are hard, problems. You guys are hard to nail down, you know. <laughs> yeah,
3: that was my Jesus, bad today. I've been, well, chas- you know.
2: I've been chasing you guys like, you know, <laughs> past the Mexican border and
1: uh, Andy, t- how would you like to come on the show and talk about your new album? Oh, let's well, just
2: rescheduled 10 times it's like uh you know do you like shoots and ladders and dungeons and dragons you know <laughs> well you have to put up for it with free advertising right uh, listen hey uh, you know it's all it's all for the love of uh, everything so. well we're
1: glad you're back on and glad we were able to make this work and uh, you know when you come on for your hat trick we'll make sure we <laughs> that one works
2: out that's right that sounds good well, you Addie, are all things blues. You are all things blues and Southern rock. Which you are both of. You are
1: mm-hmm.
3: blues and Southern rock.
2: My album has a variety of both and uh, and other things as well.
3: So let's get right to that. You have a new record out called Light of Love. And that was my first compliment to say, like, you cover so much ground stylistically and genre genre wise. You know, everything that this podcast tries to be about, you've got it covered. So you just wanted to just go deep dive and talk about how this all came together from a germ of an idea till it came to fruition, man. We'd love to hear it all.
2: Oh, well, that's fantastic. And thank you so much. So Light of Love um, is a double CD, 18 songs, nine songs per disc. Um, it's on my own label, uh, World's Finest Records. This is my third release on World's Finest Records. World's fine, like
1: that's when Superman and Batman team up. They always called that World's Finest.
2: (laughs) Well, I took it from, and the logo, if you look on the back of your CD, is it looks like a little coffee cup with the steam coming up. Yeah, you know, being from New York, just about every luncheonette would have a neon sign, and they would either say "World's Finest Coffee," "World's Best Cup of Coffee." (laughs) Do you think? I don't know that they really how do they know? Like have they <laughs> tried the coffee everywhere else, you know?
0: It, like, there's a there's like,
1: a
2: marketing term
1: for that. I can't remember. It's like bluster. It's like you're saying something, they can't really prove it or disprove it, so they'll let you to use it in your marketing.
2: And it's it's like the pizza box, you know, which is the best thing ever also. You know, you've tried the rest, have tried the best, you know. <laughs> so I guess the point of it is that who's going to argue with you? So I, I like that, that, you know, like if you went in to the coffee shop and said, I don't think that's true, you know, then you, you... so anyway, that's, that's your why. opinion. You can't, it's good... that doesn't mean it right or right. around. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, that's why my record label is world's finest records because <laughs> <laughs> I can't prove it or disprove it one way or the well,
1: other. We are the number one blues and Southern rock podcast, Andy. Oh,
2: really?
3: Well, the I number
2: guess. one <laughs> blues and southern rock podcast,
3: which we can't prove or disprove either. <laughs> I've,
2: I, I, and I haven't even tried the rest, but I know I'm trying the best. <laughs> right now. Um, but anyway, so, um, uh, COVID had a lot to do with uh, actually uh, putting me in the position to, uh, to make this come to fruition so like you know the when you got lemons you make lemonade or you look for the silver lining like all of those things and so I had a lot of songs in the can um, that had been recorded over the years in, in a variety of different sessions and had never come out on a record uh, my first album came out in 1999 called Put a Sock in It and then I had a live record come out 10 years later I'm on like the 10 year plan hey um, whatever works <laughs> yeah, the next believe me the next the distance between this record and the next one's not going to be 10 years that's well you
1: did hard. a double album i mean you have two albums worth of material at one time here
2: that is true it is a double and the reason why there are these so many songs is because um some of the songs go back uh 27 years and when i first moved into this house and put a little home studio in here with the digital a track da d88 machine and you know mixing board and started to record and um the title track "A light of love is not that old but it is from the late 90s and um so one of the things was i had all these songs but you know i knew that uh if i put them all together and you know uh, in working on finalizing them I could make them sound like they were of a piece. Like they weren't going to sound like, oh, this song's from 25 years ago and this song is from a year ago. They're all going to sound like they belong together, which I hope they do when you Mm -hmm. listen to it. Um, And the songs have a lot of meaning for me. You know, like the title track, Light of Love, um, is an emotional song. It was written during a difficult time. And so that's in the lyrics of the song and that's in the music. The feeling of the music is kind of melancholy. But, you know, to me, like uh, my favorite blues and my favorite country music, you know, is always about um, uh, talking about something that's really sad, but oftentimes just either just by talking about it or when you make your journey through the song and you get to the end of the song the protagonist in the song has found some salvation somehow um you know had a revelation in uh or, you know, over the course of the three or four or five minutes mm-hmm. the story is told in the song uh all of our favorite country songs and blue songs you know do something like that you know and so um there's a lot of emotion in uh in that song, light of love. And I think it comes through. Um, and the other part of it is just uh, in a broader way, I do like a lot of different kinds of music and kind of guitar playing. And so I try to get it all into these original songs. You know, many, some of your listeners uh, may know I played with Dickie Betts for 10 years mm-hmm. playing sly guitar. So, you know, sly guitar has been important to me my whole life and and so it's an it's natural for it to be in the songs that i write and so in light of love in the intro is a big slide solo in the intro Mm -hmm. it's the melody of the song stated with sly guitar and in recent years i've been using these old chorus item bottles you know like the real ones like Dwayne. like Dwayne, yeah and i have my Duane almond salon. where do you
1: find those bottles are just like you have to go on the internet like oh, ebay man, to get those? hard
2: to find yeah this is, this is the one that dickie gave me that belonged to Dwayne. and wow. as you as you can see it's a little injured so, yes yeah,
1: wow. <laughs> missing pieces
2: he was injured slightly so he gave it to me and i used it for six years on hundreds and hundreds of gigs and Even though it was Dwayne's and it was like, you know, maybe you should just put it in a safe place. I really felt like, no, you know what? I'm going to use this on every gig. Like, it's too crazy to not. But then it fell out of my pocket one day and broke into 50 pieces. And so I picked up all the pieces. And when I got home, I crazy glued them together. And so I still have it. It just, you know, now it belongs on the shelf. uh, (laughs) And you can't. It's not a functioning slide. But, um... No, like uh, this one, believe it or not, is actually the same era as a Duane one. It's from 68 or nine. Hmm. And a guy who I was teaching in um, France said to me, oh, I have one from 68. I'll mail it to you. And I said, really? And this, it's worth like hundreds of dollars if you go on eBay. You know, there are three, four hundred dollars, these things. And... I said, you don't have to do that. And he's like, no, 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 it's my pleasure. I think, you know, you should have it. I know you'll use it. And then he had to wrap it in this, like, crazy box that was, you know, (laughs) unbelievable so that it wouldn't break. And then the the other one I have that I'm using in the um, videos is uh, from a little later, but it's from, like, 72 or something. And that was another one that was sent to me, you know. All right, so, I had them when I was young, and we mm-hmm. all took it for granted because you could just go to the drugstore and buy a bottle of Coricidin and empty out the pills and you know boil off the label and all that. What um, is Coricidin used for? It still exists. It's it's a cold medication. Okay. Unfortunately, it comes in like you know. Uh, cardboard boxes now with the yeah. aluminum foil and the pills. You can't use the little, you can't really yeah. slide with that. <laughs> well, what makes those bottles so good to use? Well, you know, that's a very good question. And um, the only reason that happened, really, is because Dwayne Allman did it. And the story behind that is that it's kind of an incredible story. Is Dwayne was sick. He had the flu or something in 68 something like that 67 68 and greg came to visit him and he brought him a bottle of cold medication and the first taj mahal album where the opening track is statesboro blues with Jesse Ed davis on mm-hmm. slide and duane's listening and that's how he learned to play slide he was like well this will work and he emptied out <laughs> all the pills put it on his finger, and jammed along to Statesboro Blues and learned to play slide. You know, from... You know, that's what was sitting there. And so... um, It was written about in magazine articles back Mm -hmm. when the Allman Brothers first showed up. So I was a kid. I was 14 years old in 1970 and heard that Dwayne Allman used Coruscant bottles. And so that's... Everybody you knew was like going to get Coruscant bottles. Why are they good? They're good... Because number one, the size is nice, you know, especially if you wear a slide on your ring finger the way mm-hmm. Dwayne did. I, for years, uh, used a metal slide. Where is my metal slide? Um, and this is the original one from when I was a teenager. Um, I used the chrome slide on my pinky uh, because. Uh, Johnny Winter was really my first slide guitar hero, and that's what he did. He wore a chrome slide on his pinky. And then I learned about Robert Johnson, and Robert Johnson was a pinky guy, too. So that was how I played for years. And the other nice thing about the pinky is these three fingers are free for fretting. So this is out of the way. And uh, Dickie Betts likes to say... The ring, the ring finger is the stupidest finger to use for a slide because like it makes it much more difficult for, for writing with your other fingers. He uses his middle finger, which is what Bonnie Raitt does and yeah. Joe Perry and um, Ron Wood, and there's a lot of people who use their middle finger, which you can see how it would be a logical finger to yeah. use because your index ring and pinky are free for playing, and then this is out of the way. And it's, but there's something about the ring finger. I don't know what it is about the balance of the hand. You know, there's a thing to this finger. And because of the influence of Dwayne, you know, and the way he sounded, um, you know, like when I first got to know, become friends with Warren Haynes, which was around 2000. I was still playing primarily with a metal slide on my pinky. And so the other thing is that they're very light. Mm -hmm. And a lot of slide players, if they're using a metal slide, the metal is a little heavy, so you use heavier strings. And then you have to raise the action up. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. And then you can hit the guitar really hard with your pick hand because the strings are stiffer and they don't move. And so I had a guitar set up on my 1970 Tele with 14s, really heavy strings. Wow. 14, 14, 18, 22 unwound for a G. Like, the strings didn't move. No kidding. It felt like a lap steel, in fact.
1: You almost put bass strings on there like Brian plays.
2: <laughs> very, very heavy. And the action was really high. And it was really hard to fret. Like, I could yeah, fret sure. down in the first five frets. But, man, you want an Elmore James sound, you know with a metal slide and you're like hitting it as hard as you can with your right hand. It, it was fantastic with a tally on the bridge pickup would rip your head off. It was great. But what I learned, the more I, you know, became intrigued with, with this is, you know, Dwayne Owen played on nines, you know, like in those days, mm-hmm. he used nines and he had one guitar for a long time. So if you listen to the bootlegs, from the first year that the Omens were touring in 69, you hear Dwayne tuning to open E for the slide tunes and tuning back. And that's that gold top. What's affectionately known as the Layla guitar because mm-hmm. guitar used on Layla. And I got to play that guitar, which was pretty wild using his slide. So the two together in the big house, sitting in the big house and making Georgia was like, okay, if you say so. And, um, So the lightness of the glass bottle works very well with the light strings, and then you don't have to have really high action. So you can have pretty normal action for playing guitar, because Dwayne needed to. (laughs) Dwayne played the guitar in a normal way in standard tuning for most of the night. It was only those few songs, like Don't Keep Me Wondering or Statesboro Blues, you know, where he would, or um, Done Somebody Wrong where he would tune the guitar you know, to an open E for playing slide. Um, songs like um, Dreams and um, Mountain Jam, he played slide in standard tuning. Some of your, you you guys may know this, and some of your viewers may know. Dwayne famously said in an interview, well, I always play slide in open E tuning, except for two songs, Dreams and Mountain Jam, because I can't play slide in standard tuning for shit. Now, um. A lot of people would disagree with him about that. Um, But, so that's the thing with the bottles. The light, and that's what Warren told me, you know, at the time. Because I had a, I didn't know how to do it. I, I mean, it was like a whole thing of like really light touch with both hands. And then the action... I asked Warren, I said, how do you set your action? Because he plays so much slide and he doesn't change guitars. Right, he plays standard, right? Slide and standard? Always standard, and that's a Dickie Betts thing. Because what I learned as soon as Dickie hired me, you know, on the first tour, I brought an SG and an Open E tuning. But Dickie doesn't give you time to change guitars. You know, he doesn't know what he's going to play. So he'll just go, Stays for Blues, one, two, like... <laughs> In the first tour, I'd be like, wait, wait a minute. I have to change the guitar. And he would just be like, you know, oh, man. And then Warren told me, like, no, it's not going to work. You know, like, so what I would do is, it was sort of funny. You know, I'd keep the glass bottle in my pocket. You know, I'd wear like Western style shirts or denim shirts, whatever, with a pocket. Just, as soon as the song would end. I would take the slide out, put it on my finger. Like I didn't know it was the next song, one. <laughs> and I'd be like this. And then you go, States this, you look at me and I go, i oh, okay. go.
3: <laughs> was, was that all the time where he would just call them out? Like there was never a written set list?
2: Um, there was a sort of a template that we stuck to pretty much. But the main difference was. Uh, if the show is like a one-setter and and it was going to be 70 to 90 minutes, 75 to 90 minutes, let's say, Mm -hmm. the first thing is Dickie hated doing those shows because he felt like he had no um, freedom of choice, you know, because he had to play the hits. And the hits are long. So he's like, well, we have to play Jessica, we have to Mm -hmm. play Liz Reed, we have to play Blue Sky. Um, You know, there was a handful of songs that we have to play No One Left to Run With. Um, Like a big chunk of that 75 minutes was going to get eaten up by the songs that everybody came to hear, you know. And so it wasn't as much fun for him. If we were going to do two sets and play three hours or three and a half hours, He liked that much more because then he could really sort of, you know, uh, have a wider range in the catalog of stuff to do. And it was more fun for all of us. So in cases like that, then you didn't know. Like he might, like, I don't know if you guys know the song Change My Way of Living, which might be on Tales of Two Worlds. I'm not sure. It's on one of the albums when they got back together. And that's a big sly tune. Um, great song fantastic Mm -hmm. song very interesting song it's like a blues but it's got cool changes and so you know there was a period of time and it would change also through the 10 years there would be sort of different phases of what was normal so there was a time when like we would play change my way of living like song number four like every night you know so you know we when you um map out a set list You know, there's a sort of rhythm to it, you know. And so as a band, we would get used to what Dickie had in mind. Um, But like I said, it was more fun for him if uh, we had a longer show. And I don't know if you guys know the song Rock Bottom is from an album that was done by the Dickie Betts band called Pattern Disruptive is the Mm -hmm. name of the band. I'm not familiar with that song, Brian, are you?
3: No, I'm refer I'm uh familiar with that record, but
2: Pattern disruptive, yeah. It's a pretty wild record. And uh, that's the first I think the first record that Warren is on with. Yeah, Dick. right, yeah, yep
3: yeah.
2: And so it's and there is Dickie Betts' band stuff, live stuff like from the Lone Star Roadhouse from that period of time from eighty eight. Um and Warren's in the band. So it's not the Almond Brothers. But Dickey had gotten used to having Warren as, you know, his other guitar player. And so when the Almond Brothers did reform, he was like, well, you know, this guy's coming along. He, he'd been with Betts for a while. They'd already worked all that out, you know. And Warren is phenomenal. So, you know, you couldn't find a more professional, together, talented guy Who's going to sing great, play great, play slide, you know, have it completely together?
1: Oh, his new record is, is Blues Records,
2: awesome, Government Mule. Love it. I haven't heard it yet. I you haven't know. heard I, it? It just no, came out like
1: not. right around Christmas, right, early December, late November.
2: Check it out. Bu- I've been busy.
1: Well, you have a double album. I mean, come on, you have to have all this time.
2: <laughs> yeah, my record's done now. Well, I have nothing but free time now. That's right. Well, when you're not making music videos, make lyric videos exactly. Which is that's for your viewers. What we were discussing before. Um, you know, uh, I when you when you make a record um, these days, um, you know. Uh, there's no record companies in the old days the record company would basically do what i have to do which is all the promotion and Mm -hmm. all the things to say okay well i want my record to get played on radio stations and i want it to get played on radio stations all over the globe but today we also have what's called streaming services which didn't exist you know um not that long ago so um, I hired one guy whose specialty is Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, you know, also, and then all social media, mm-hmm. and Twitter and Instagram. And so he's pushing, um, so Light of Love, the title track is, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, the first single from the right. record. Cause that's been out and it hasn't even been a week. That's been out like five days on the streaming services. But it's up to like five thousand streams, which seems good to me. A thousand I, streams a day is pretty good, I would mm-hmm. think. Not a, not a day, but over in five days. Right. Um,
1: well, then the average is
2: out to a thousand a day, you know. And it keeps getting added to more playlists on Spotify. So, like, you know, the first couple days it was on five playlists, and then it was next day it was on ten, and now it's on like fifty-five playlists. So. This is all new to me. Apparently, that means it's good. It's growing. Yeah. Yeah. And then this other entity... Um, uh, so that the guy who's helping me with that is named Johnny Wax, and it's a 4x4 four four artist management. And then there's another entity called Music and Film, Music with a K, uh, Stephen Wrench, and his specialty is worldwide radio. And he's got connections to over a quarter million radio stations. So he started um Monday and I got a email this morning that said it's already been downloaded by 1500 radio stations like basically in a day and a half wow and so and then some of those stations aren't solitary stations like they are mothership stations that have dozens of um uh, syndic stations that are syndicated under them so like if one station downloaded it's it could mean that they're going to send it to 30 other stations. Like we, we don't, we don't know. It's the very beginning, but this is how it works now. So the single that I'm that's getting pitched first with music and film is is the song "Out for a Ride," and that's the one I'm doing the music video, uh, lyric video for now. So for your viewers, this is a big part of how things get promoted today. You need a lyric video, so put a video together, either you do it yourself or get somebody to do it for you. Um, but it needs to have the lyrics, you know, scrolling by. And so. Why is that I, important? Did they explain that to you to have the lyrics actually don't go I don't know. It's, but it's interesting, you know, when the record was done, you know, I went in the studio and finished everything up and then we mastered it. And then, you know, you have to get, um, ISRC codes uh, so that the songs can be tracked, you know, number of times they're played. It's like a sound scan thing, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's almost like a UPC code for each song. And um, so then you send it to somebody else for that, you know, and you and you do all that, um, and then uh, disc makers who made the CDs, they connect you with CD Baby, who CD Baby does your distribution and you right. sign up and i did i signed up for pro distribution which means you know like 50 streaming services so aside from the big ones that we all know spotify and itunes and pandora and title and amazon music youtube mm-hmm. music you know i didn't even realize there's youtube music is its own thing there's a youtube music app and it's just music and the, i knew there was an amazon music app and it's the same thing it's But there's uh, dozens of other ones. Anyway, um, once you're signed up with CD Baby and they plug you into their pro distribution, they then say to you, hey, you've got a new record and you need to promote it and here's all the things you need to do. So here's a list of 29 things that you must do right now. Your record's done. (laughs) It's up on streaming services. Hooray. So now here's 29 things you have to do. (laughs) Number one a lyric video. I don't know why. They're like, make a lyric video, put it on YouTube and then share it every social media platform that exists. So it's a thing, you know. That explains why I've seen a lot of
1: lyric videos. Like when you go to YouTube and you search for an mm-hmm. artist, you'll see lyric video, lyric video, lyric video. And I, did, I guess that's because it's required for distribution and promotion
2: never knew that used to be i mean you know there's the other side is karaoke you know i mean um sure it it can't be denied it's a huge thing you know people use those lyric videos uh, for karaoke and and if you're not buying an album there's
1: no liner notes with the lyrics in them so maybe this is like the new age of liner notes
2: i mean it, it must be that lyric videos are you know incredibly popular and it's There's a better chance that people are going to click on it if it's a lyric video than not, for whatever one reason or another. Um, So, the first one that I made for Light of Love uh, one of the benefits of touring, you know, for the last 20 years, um, you know, either with the Jimi Hendrix Experience uh, tribute tours or playing shows with Double Trouble or with Dickie Betts. And primarily with bets because I did over 200 shows, you know, between two and three hundred, two and three hundred shows with them. People send me pictures, you know, so I have like this wonderful, you know, archive of really, really good, really nice uh, live photos of me playing. So you know that first video light of love. I just, I mean, I picked eighty pictures, something like that. It was a lot of pictures, and. Made a slideshow, and you sit there, and you can. There's in iMovie. There's something called uh, Ken Burns, so you can like the, the Ken over. Burns, like the
1: documentary guy.
2: <laughs> it's actually a button in iTunes. The Ken Burns oh, button. Ken Burns. <laughs> and you Ken Burns, and it and it's great. So the thing of like a photo slowly pulling away, or oh, it does all the and, effects? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The yeah, push pull. Does it for you like automatically?
1: Well- you sent it to us before you got on the record, and I was watching. It was really good. A lot of really cool pictures, different pictures, different guitars, different as you play in. So. And then I so-
2: flew in a live video when the guitar solo comes in Light of Love. I had a video clip of me playing with Bet, you know, and playing Slide, yeah. and it's not Light of Love. It's a different song. But, you know, you go from... Uh, a series of still images that are panning and, you know, in a slideshow manner. But then all of a sudden you see live video of me playing and it's a nice switch. Well, I this like mid- how the beginning of
1: it, when your slide starting the song, it shows a picture of you, a close-up with your hand the glass slide mm-hmm.
2: on. And that's the Dwayne slide. Yeah. That's actually... Before I fell out of your pocket and shattered. Yes. It was a number <laughs> of years before I was playing and a guy said, I got to take a picture of that Dwayne slide. And he sent me the picture. Good photo. Um, but the new video for "Out for a Ride" is I went back to the studio because it just looks really nice. You know, um, my buddy Bob Stander, part Cheesy Studios. Um, this is a guy I've been friends with for 45 years. Uh, and he's an incredible musician, but he's an amazing engineer. Um, I mean, you you guys heard the records? It sounds. Record yeah, it's right? great. Sounds great. And. Um, so he has this beautiful API board. You know, it's a, over $100,000. And um, not only does it sound good, it looks really nice to sit in front of when you make a music video. <laughs> so um, so I was over there the other night, two nights ago, and we shot a bunch of stuff. And that's uh, what is going to comprise most of the FRI video. So... Um, do you have questions about any of the songs,
3: Brian did You, sorry to you want you, me well, go?
2: Sorry to go? put you on the spot.
3: Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I we are interviewing you. We should have questions. Jason and I chatted a little bit about it. Like it, the moods kind of swing nicely, and then you have the interment instrumental stuff towards the second half, and I I I really liked that, you know. And then the songs that you know, I'm such a guy who decided to like the rockers, you know. What I mean, so you know uh oh can't be, like can be yeah yeah can it be uh the piano i like that out for a ride i'm looking forward to seeing that you know and the, uh have mercy the double trouble double trouble yeah. track so that, that's i'm really you know straight up drawn towards the up, upbeat rocker stuff and that's with anybody well yeah.
1: it, it's kind of nice on this andy is the fact that since you did release the stuff while making tracks. You're able to have some of those acoustic, more country or folksy stuff and the mm-hmm. lighter stuff, which, you know, traditionally when you record has been a lot more blues based stuff than this. And then you have your rockers, like Brian said. So it gives you that time, and that palette to kind of do that. Was that kind of your intent?
2: Well, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, when you write a song, you just look at each song individually and the song tells you what it needs, you know, Um oftentimes in the beginning you'll try different things and then as you kind of spend more time with the song you get a better idea of, mm-hmm. of what works better you know it, it can be interesting sometimes it's really easy like it's just you know right away like what's the best instrumentation and you know what should the drums do you know like i'll have it really clear in my mind but other times it's not so clear and so you'll try different things. You'll say, oh, let's try acoustic piano. And then you go, "Ah, hey, you know what? Like, let's put B3 on. Like, maybe that'll be yeah. better. Yeah, you got a lot of keys and
1: an organ on this, too. It's great. Yes. Who's playing for
2: you? They're they're wonderful. Terrific. That's a guy named Mike DeMeo. Mike DeMeo is a tremendous keyboard player. Yeah, he's he great, is. He's a great singer. Um, he, uh, he was almost in Deep Purple when he was 20 years old 21 or two years old um which is about 30 years ago yeah like 1992 okay. um, god
1: 1992 was 30 years ago oh god help mm-hmm. me
2: i know sorry um, <laughs> he, uh, that's awful well jason you're only 32 so That'd uh,
1: only 32 only 32 <laughs> born in 92 yep
2: that's right <laughs> so um I'm surprised that you even remember 92. You were only two years old. I graduated high school in 93, so there you go. Wow. At one. <laughs> At one. Genius. So smart. So smart. <laughs> <laughs> Don't step on him. <laughs> That's right. He's very okay. small. I was
1: wearing a diaper to That's my sad. graduation ceremony. That's
3: right.
2: <laughs> well, anyway, besides that, um, so Mike had become friends with Richie Blackmore, you know, the guitar mm-hmm. player from Deep Purple. Yeah. And he was actually living with Richie. Um, And Richie said, well, I want you to be the singer in Deep Purple. And Mike's voice is insane. You know, like, I mean, if he feels like it, he can sound exactly like David Coverdale. You know, it's. Oh, no kidding. It's unbelievable. Damn. Or Chris Cornell. Like, you know, I mean, he's got. Wow. He's got some pipes. So what happened was. Uh, Deep Purple made an album in 92 or 3 that I believe came out in 94 called The Battle Rages On and Mike did all the vocals and then EMI said we're not going to release the record if Ian Gillen's not the singer huh. you know the original Deep Purple yeah, singer, yeah. or actually you know the second Deep Purple singer and uh, after Rod Evans and um, Richie was so mad he said alright we'll do, I'll do it. But the second the record's done and we do like one tour, I'm quitting deep purple forever. And he did. Jeez. It was just kind of amazing. But I felt, you know, I felt bad for Mike because, you know, you can't imagine how his life would have been if he had actually been the singer in deep purple at 21 or two years old, you know, 30 years ago. But, um, He's gone on to do a lot of different things. Uh, He was in a band called Riot. I don't know if you know the band Riot, which is a metal band. Mm -hmm. He made six albums with Riot as a singer. The singing is phenomenal. And these days he plays with Tommy James you know, and the Shondells and Mm -hmm. a variety of other people. So anyway, he's a keyboard player. He's a tremendous keyboard player. And he's a great singer. And so the song, the second song on the album, Save Something For Me, Um, he's singing the harmony vocals on that and um, there's a lot of harmony vocals on the record all of them are me except for that one song and the reason is save something for me is just live in the studio completely live and this was part of the process i had all these songs and i was thinking well light of love i knew was done it just needed to be mixed but many of the other ones i thought oh i got to redo the guitar you know the guitar was just that scratch guitar i did on the first take or we got to redo the vocals they were scratch vocals but then we discovered that they were good Mm -hmm. so on save something for me it's all just exactly live like the way we recorded it um those are the vocals those that's the guitar solo that i played when we cut it
1: wow that's impressive so you're going to put some scratch stuff down you end up keeping it because the takes are good
2: Exactly, like you know, we went back later, and we went, you know what I like we could redo it, but like maybe we don't have to, it's actually fine, and especially the solo, like this like there is a thing about what's played when it's the live take,
0: mm-hmm.
2: like Brian mentioned can it be can it be completely live, like a hundred percent that's what we played, and it's really good. <laughs> I redid the vocal on that tune.
1: Yeah,
2: but you it didn't go time. back
1: and track the solo. It's just what you're Nothing. doing with everybody no. at the same time.
2: Okay. I just redid the vocal because my vocal, I didn't. You know, I forgot some of the words, and I didn't do as good a job uh, <laughs> as I had done on "Save Something for Me." Um, but so it saved something for me at the time. That, so I should say, I started to say the songs came from a variety of different sessions. Some of the songs, like "Light of Love." and um buried somerville lost and lonely um wonder land of the freaks Hold on. yeah land of the freaks is kind of crazy land of the freaks is nut, right um and that's a play on words you know after yeah land of the free like i had when i recorded it i just wrote like freak out or something because all like <laughs> freak out and then when I decided to put it on the record, I was like, well, I can't call it Freak Out. i got to call it something. So I thought Land of the Freaks, it cracked me up.
1: So it that, works. You know,
2: Home of the Brave, Land of yep. the Freaks.
1: Land of the Freaks. So We've got a lot of them.
2: <laughs> and it, we, we, if this isn't the Land of the Freaks, man, I don't know what is. So <laughs> yeah. Pretty accurate. But... Um, um, so I was saying, some, the, some of the songs that really went back... Um, I mean, Light of Love was from maybe 97. Okay. Um, Lost and Lonely's from like 94 or 5. Wyatt's Tune is a song I wrote for my son. He's 29 now. He okay. Was, it's, he, he was five. So that was. Well, 90. I was going to say, who's the
1: Wyatt's Tune written after Cigarette's son back when he was,
2: was a young child? He was five. He's 29 yeah. now. And the fact that this song even exists is mind blowing for me because the first thing I had to do when I decided I was going to actually make this record was fix all the machines that were broken. So my D88 multitrack machine was broken and I needed to retrieve those, you know, multitracks Mm -hmm. from a lot of sessions. So I got the machine fixed. It worked for a while, long enough for me to bounce stuff. It's broken again. (laughs) And I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe try to find it. There's no radio shack
1: around anymore.
2: (laughs) Radio shack wouldn't have been helpful in this case, Mm -hmm. but, um, so, I also had to uh, fix my DAT machine that was broken for 18 years. And I had a whole stack of DAT tapes and didn't even know what was on them. And um, so uh, I knew I had to get the DAT machine fixed, got the DAT machine fixed, started going through tapes. And I found this one tape. And it was from '97. And it was really crazy because. I didn't know what was on any of these tapes, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean I, some of them were marked and I'd look and I'd go, I remember that song, I know what that is. There was ha- at least half of the stuff I was like, I don't know what this is, I don't really remember. And so um, I had an odd gig in ninety seven which was acoustic guitar and percussion, me and my drummer opening for James Cotton, the blues player, mm-hmm. at a club that we played off in called Chicago Blues in New York City. In fact, my first album put a sock in it. The cover, all the pictures are from Chicago Blues because we played there a lot. So it's a little unusual. Acoustic guitar and percussion, you know, opening for James Cotton. So we had this rehearsal, um, me and my drummer. So there's 15 songs. They're all blues songs. Song number nine is called Wyatt's Tune. So I'm, lo- I'm looking at the box. I'm like, what is Wyatt's? Like, I kind of know <laughs> what this is. There's there's no other version, there's no work tape, there's no like me figuring it out because it's not just like an improvisation, it's a written piece. When you listen to it, you'll hear this, you know, this you know developed theme, you know, that goes through these different changes. There is improvisation in it, but it's a song. And the other part of it was it's really well recorded.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I know I was just recording a rehearsal for us to listen back to it. So that was like total luck it was like wow and then even the guitar i was like what guitar is this <laughs> and i remembered that a good friend of mine who's incredible luthier and now i have three of his guitars now but i had none of his guitars then had lent me a guitar f- to use for that gig so this was like the day before the gig
1: an acoustic guitar
2: Yes. Yeah. Beautiful acoustic guitar. So when I was listening to it, I was going like, what guitar is this? It sounds amazing. So anyway, that's the story with that song. So that was just like finding, you know, a needle in a haystack. Barry Somerville, the opening track on disc two, is a song that I dreamt. Um, In the dream, it was Paul McCartney uh, playing piano and singing. The chords and the lyrics and the melody, exactly the first thing you hear when the song starts. There are pieces in the ground of Barry Somerville. That's what Paul was singing in the dream. I woke up and I was cracking up like, what does this mean? And so I came downstairs and I spent three days writing a song. Um, That's like a really complicated song. Um, And so there's a, a bunch of songs. Well, Light of Love and... Um, too Much To Give are from a, a series of sessions in 2003 that I did with a drummer named Vito Luisi, who was Johnny Winters' drummer for, for years and years. And uh, he was my drummer for a while, too. And so we recorded those two songs together. And um, Too Much To Give, if you remember that one, it's an instrumental, mm-hmm. it's a really nice song. It's sort of like kind of R&B ballady song sort of, almost to me it's almost like Mark Knopfler or um, Santana or Jeff Beck, like Cause We Ended His Love or something like that um, and that originally had lyrics and it was going to be like a soul song and then I just said I'll just play the melody on guitar but in 2008 um, I had 15 songs that I had gone over with the band And we went into a recording studio uh, for two days in a row and recorded all the songs, top to bottom. And because the band was so well rehearsed, that's how we were able to do that pretty easily. And that's where Save Something For Me, Can It Be, Cool Water, Alpha Rod, Untitled, um, Snowbird. um, You shook me, like most of the songs Mm -hmm. came from those two days that two day session in 2008 um and some of those songs needed you know like like i said save something for me needed basically nothing i just put some acoustic guitars over it but untitled needed like a brand new lead guitar and soloing so that's i just did that like two months ago so the record is you know yeah it's uh it's like
1: a career retrospective a little mm-hmm. bit, in, in a way.
2: It really is. It's like it comes from different facets of my life and different times. But it was important to me, also, you know, part of the um, uh, riddle to solve is you have 18 songs and you need to sequ- se- sequence mm-hmm. sequence them in a way that's going to work um, because there are stylistic differences. Like yep. you said, some songs are more country-like you know, like Light of Love, Mm -hmm. um, some songs with more harmony vocals. So to go all the way back to your original question, Jason, you know, was that intentional? Like going from the sound of a lot of acoustic guitars and vocals to harder rock uh, or heavy blues like Have Mercy On Me that I recorded with Double Trouble. And just to, you know, uh, touch on that for a second, around 2000. Two or three, I did a a session with them. They hired me for. And we got to the end of what we needed to do. And the engineer said, you know, you got an extra half hour. Like, we were done. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the time was booked for another half hour. And I said to Chris and Tommy, can we record one of my songs? And they very kindly said, show it to us. And so I showed them in, like, a minute. And then we cut it once. And that's the basic track. The rhythm, guitar, bass, and drums is live. Then we went in the control room to listen. And Tommy had his bass. And he said to me, you know what? There's a couple spots. Like, I don't think I really played exactly the right thing. Let me punch in so the bass is perfect. So it was pretty much like 95% a live track. Had it in the can for almost 20 years. And so then three months ago, I put on... Uh, lead guitar and vocal live from beginning to end like hit play i got the amp cranked in the other room and i'm singing in um you know the uh u48 telefunken microphone tons of bleed because the amp's (laughs) super loud yeah but it was live from beginning to end and there was a couple punch-ins where i forgot how to play guitar or played something horrible those (laughs) things (laughs) but you sort of the trip was traveled if you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. the feeling of a story being told and the uh, momentum of the playing was captured by making it like a live performance
1: it's a great track too i mean if you like double trouble cv Ravon, texas blues that i mean (laughs) it's right there yeah man
2: mercy on me is pretty heavy it's um you know i sent it to joe perry um, at the risk of being a name dropper um,
1: <laughs> that's okay you know, you know everybody we know you're good well,
2: well joe is a great dude and actually the way i got to know joe is in 2000 he called me out of the blue like on a monday night at nine o'clock the phone rang and i answered the phone and the voice goes hi it's joe perry and i go hello <laughs> no <laughs> what's up what's up joe and then we started to talk and it was very funny. Like I had heard he had knee surgery. So I go, how's your knee? And he's like, oh, it's much better. I think I could go skiing. And then I said, Joe you Perry
1: know, likes skiing?
2: Yes. He oh. loves skiing.
1: Brian, I never knew
2: that. Did you know I that? I <laughs> All right. You learned something. Well, he's got a house in Vermont specifically oh, for out. skiing. And um, so... I said, you know, Joe, you know, you don't answer. I hope you realize, you know, most people don't answer their phone expecting to hear, hi, it's Joe Perry, you know. And he cracked (laughs) up, and he said, he goes, well, and I had met him, and I had given him my first record, and he had listened to some instructional stuff I did, specifically this book called uh, Blues Rock Guitar Masters, where I replicated, to the best of my ability, the playing of Jeff Beck and Leslie West and Richie Blackmore and Johnny Winter, all these guys. So he said to me he goes you know I think you're a fantastic guitar player would you give me lessons
1: Holy shit wow what the wow And this was what year 2000 2022 wow. <laughs> He he's released so many <laughs> classic albums he's like hey can you give me no, guitar lessons now Well
2: I'll tell you what he said though, and this gives you and this really gives you insight into him as a person He said to me he goes I've had more success than I ever could have dreamed of you know when I started like a hundred times more and but I still don't have the thing I sought out to get when I started I can't play exactly the way I want to play I can't sound the way I want to sound and I got to give him a lot of credit for staying on that path and you know always striving to to learn and play better and you know that part of him he said it hasn't changed one bit doesn't matter that 50 years have gone by he still picks up the guitar and he wants to play better than he did yesterday mm-hmm. which is cool
1: yeah that's fantastic i mean it's like anything else it's like life you're always learning getting better instrument sport but just have joe perry in 2000 call you and say hey give me guitar lessons." <laughs> just, read, read so many iconic riffs
2: oh yeah well it's funny he he um he said, you know, like, you can uh, listen to Jeff Beck and then replicate it, and it sounds just like sounds just like Jeff Beck, you know, or Leslie West or mm-hmm. Hendrix." He goes, but me, you know, I just end up sounding like me. And I go, well, Joe, you know, I hate to break it to you, but sounding like Joe Perry hasn't really been the worst thing.
3: <laughs> right. <You
2: know? laughs> like, it's, it's been kind of cool. <laughs> or at least everyone that loves Aerosmith. Is, right. You know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Aerosmith was the first concert I ever went to. Aerosmith with Guns N' Roses is the opener. Oh, my wow. God. 1987.
2: Wow. Uh, where was it?
1: Cincinnati Riverbend.
2: Oh, man. Was it the um, the the, the um, amphitheater?
1: Yeah. Yep. Right there on the river is the backdrop. Yep. I I grew up close to that area. That was my primary concert
2: venue. Okay. So this photo... On here somewhere it says what year it is. Ninety
1: eight. Oh, oh, look at that! At Perry, Jeff Perry, in yeah. the
2: room at the Cincinnati uh, Riverbend Amphitheater. Oh my god! And so I, I saw
1: can- him again in ninety three because my mom, my parents got me and my friends concert tickets to see Aerosmith. It was graduation, part of graduation presence in ninety three, and Jackal was the opener
2: oh my god did you get your chainsaw sign he
1: got the chainsaw on the last song and took down a, a stool <laughs> that well, i love that gibson less paul that he has that that dark burst yeah. or whatever
2: that gray black it's beautiful that's a cool guitar um well that's funny because that that's where uh the first time i hung out with them was uh, in cincinnati um and um, anyway, the reason I brought up Joe is because I sent him have mercy on me mm-hmm. when it was done. And he texted me back right away. And he said, this is the best guitar playing and singing I've heard in a long, long time. Wow. And then I sent it to uh, Joe Bonamassa, who's a guy I've become friends with over the years, who's an extremely nice guy. Like one of the nice- only OK
1: at guitar, though. Nice he's, guy. He's at okay. OK at guitar.
2: Yeah, he's OK. Um, and you know, it's funny because, you know, like he is the recipient of, uh, a lot of criticism and people rag on him, you know, like, I don't know who knows what's
1: what? a, what's a criticism though. To, I mean, I've got a lot of friends that were into him, but I've not really heard a lot of criticism.
2: Well, um, well, my point was still only going to be that he's the most self deprecating person. Like he'll make fun of himself, you know, more than anyone else. So all the, all the. Shade or whatever comes out he doesn't care. He just takes it and rolls with it. Well, he does, but it's it's like when somebody goes, "Hey, I, you know, you're not that great. You just play a lot of fast looks, like whatever. You know, like whatever criticisms. He's already said all those th- things about himself. You know, it's like tell me something I don't know, right? Like he makes a big <laughs> joke out of it. Um, but you know. We, we all know that he's a phenomenal musician and he's a truly gifted guitar player and a unique player in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. And he's, you know, what many people probably don't know is that he's an extremely nice person and very generous person and very down earth person. And so now that we're friends and I know him and we'll text back and forth, I mean, dumb stuff. Like, yeah. I'll be getting ready to go to bed at, you know, twelve one o'clock in the morning, and he's in L.A., and he'll send a picture of Hendrix that's black and white, and he'll go, I think the guitar, this is the Strat's, uh ocean blue metallic, but you can't tell because it's a black and white photo. Right. And I'm, like, falling asleep, and I'm like, I think it's red. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> red. Completely <laughs> opposite. red one that he painted in my bird in Monterey, you know. So, like, we have, anyway, I sent him Have Mercy on Me, and he wrote back, Man, that sounds phenomenal. It's so live, and I know how hard it is to capture that live thing in the studio. So, you know, all of that uh, made me very, very happy, you know, to hear from those guys. And um, Satriani, Joe Satriani sent me a text just a couple days ago, and it's just funny, you know. He wrote, this this is exactly what his text said. Call me crazy, but my favorite song on your record is Save Something From Me.
1: Why is that crazy?
2: Well, because it's not like a shreddy. Well, yeah, uh...
1: but you don't play like Saturani does either. Saturani has a completely different style.
2: Yes, but like a song like "Land of the Freaks" or "Untitled" or "Yeah," you know, or "Have Mercy." I mean, you know, his point was that he didn't go for the hot ass guitar, right? Okay,
1: he went no for more. the no more mellow.
2: I got it. But, All right. Well, he and he—it surprised him too, you know. And he said, "He he said it's a perfect song." So, believe me, I appreciate it. And but it just shows, you know, Joe—he's a nice person, he's a mm-hmm. generous person, and. He was just being a listener, you know, saying, well, what song is appealing to me the most? You know, I mean, we're exactly the same age. So he grew up, you know, listening to all the same stuff. You know, I was a fan as much as I was a um, um, what's the word, you know, obsessed with Jimi Hendrix and Johnny Winter and the Allman Brothers and Jeff Beck. Um, and Leslie West and Robin Trower and Frank Zappa, like, you know, Hall and John McLaughlin, like, all this, all day long. I also loved Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Van Morrison and Cat Stevens and the Beatles, you know, um, and the Rolling Stones and um, songs, you know, songs were the most important thing, you know. If You know, if there's some hot-ass guitar playing in there, well, that's nice, too. But, you know, my first guitar hero was George Harrison. There's no two ways about it. Uh, His guitar playing on the Beatle albums is all tremendous. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's perfect. So, but always in the service of the song. And so I think Joe Satriani shares that with me. We grew up, that's what was tattooed on our brain. Try to make a good song, you know a catchy melody, good chords, have an intro, have a nice verse that goes, you know, maybe, if necessary, goes to a pre-chorus, into a chorus, and then you have a bridge. You know, you have these pieces, and it's um, it's fun to learn the craft of songwriting, and, oh, I need to, how am I going to put this together? And so, because there's 18 songs on the album, it gave me the opportunity to go across a wide swath of you know all of those different things. But if there was is one thing anyway, what I discovered when we were done was how much acoustic guitar and how much vocal harmonies there were on the record. I didn't even realize it. Then when I listen to the record now as a whole, it's like holy crap, there's so much acoustic guitar. That's what
1: stuck out to me all the acoustic guitar and the more mellow stuff. It's like wow. Yeah. Right off the bat, first couple songs.
2: Exactly. And so Cool Water, the song Cool Water, starts with this big acoustic guitar riff. And then the solo comes in, and it's very Dicky Betts, Almond Brothers. And that's actually a song that I showed Betts the first night I ever sat in with them um, in 2003. You know, I joined the band in 2005. Or might have even been 2002, probably 2002. And I sat in with them, and then after the show, He said, well, let's just hang out and play acoustic guitar. So we sat in the back of the bus for like hours. And, you know, as you can imagine, it was like the greatest thing ever. I'm sitting there with Dickie Bez just playing acoustic guitars. And so I showed him that song. And I said, you know, I always thought this was sort of in the realm of, you know, your music, you know, his solo music and the Allman Brothers. Mm -hmm. And he was funny. He said, oh, I can hear that. He goes, it sounds a little more like Dan Toler's to me (laughs) than like something that he would do but the almonds thing is there oh for sure and so you know like if you think of laid back Greg's record you know there's lots of acoustic guitar and um, you know that's Greg's first solo album and then Dickie's solo album Highway Call there's like acoustic guitar in every song sometimes there's only acoustic guitar some of those songs there's no electric guitar at all like the title track, you know. So, anyway, um, and then the vocal harmonies were really important to me. So on uh, "Lost and Lonely" and on "Out for a Ride," you know, there's three part vocal harmonies. It's all me, you know. So, you know, just trying to make a big sound, mm-hmm. cover those bases. You know, doubled acoustics so you get a nice bed of acoustics. Um, to fill out the sound of a rock band. And then you get three part vocal harmonies happening on top. You know, you get a nice big picture.
3: So I got a, some questions and questions, observations. Um, when you've been mentioning all these players and your friends and whatnot, there's some coincidences here. Like when I'm listening to stuff and I'll have a little scratching, little things like the just nuances or whatever that's going to remind me of, of whatever it is. Because um, you mentioned Satriani, and although I didn't have anything here written for Satriani, I know he he uh, gave lessons to Steve Vai, and on Space Dog, I had written down Steve Vai. Yeah. Just something about it, like, sounded like that. And then the same with Untitled, like with Santana, and on um, Snowbird, I have epic Grateful Dead feel.
2: Well, I'll start with uh, Space Dog. Uh, Space Dog... Um... That guitar sound is an Octavia, uh, you know, which you hear Hendrix use on Mm -hmm. solo on Purple Haze, and he used it on Machine Gun, and um, it's definitely, you know, in that Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, sort of, for lack of a better term, modern rock vibe, you know, heavy melody. Um, There's a big influence I hear of Leslie West. In the phrasing, um, because the first two guys I really learned solos from, you know, like in the beginning, Hendrix was just too hard; it was too complicated. Mm-hmm. But like Leslie West, I could grab some licks, you know. Mm-hmm. And Mick Taylor on uh, "Get Your Eyes Out" Rolling Stones live album, like uh, "Midnight Rambler" and uh, "Love in Vain" and stuff. Like Mick Mick's slide solo on "Love in Vain" from "Get Your Eyes Out" is one of the first. Things I learned to play slide guitar or trying to do, and still to this day, I mean, I get chills thinking about it. You know, is that he like, playing standard? No, when he's G an open G, he's yeah. an open G on that stuff. I, I figured, and um, all down the line from Exile, I think is Open A. <laughs> those were like huge for me for learning to play. Um, so Space Dog, the phrasing and the melodies. Um, or a little more Leslie West. But I gave, I, you know, I wrote and recorded that song uh, around the same time as uh, Wyatt's tune in 97. And I sent it to Joe then. And Joe loved it then. Because I to me, it was very Satriani, you know. <laughs> um, I could see the connection to him. And he really liked it. And in his text, I don't think he remembered that I sent it to him because he wrote, I love that song with the octave guitars. It sounds amazing.
1: Is there an effect on the beginning? Like it, it sounds different the beginning of the song. On on um, uh, space, space dog. dog,
2: yeah, no, it's just doubled. Okay, there, there's two guitars, and so I'm going bone. Yeah, and this trill, but there's two guitars, so that's why it's okay, kind of nuts. And then it settles into one guitar. Right, this that's why I was wondering if you
1: had an effect, but I guess doubling it would
2: okay. It makes it sound like an effect. And then when when that is reprised later in the song, I don't play the the same thing with each guitar. I play different notes. Mm -hmm. So then it's harmonized and it sounds really bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) And then the way the song ends is I start soloing with both guitars. um, Because like if you listen to Politician uh, Kareem on um, Wheels of Fire, Eric's got three guitars all soloing at the same time. And it's you know like the most amazing thing ever the way they weave in and out of it can't each other. play that live though you can't do it live now <laughs> but I went for that kind of thing and Hendrix did that too like one of my all time favorite Hendrix songs is Gypsy Eyes mm-hmm. and all through Gypsy Eyes and all through I mean there's a lot of songs on Electric Ladyland where there's dual lead guitars like Rainy Day Dream Away and Still Rain and Still Dreaming and and so that weaving thing of these guitars talking to each other and sort of swimming around each other and so that's what happens in, at the end of space dog and then we purposely pan them all of a sudden at the end of the song the two guitars are going like this they keep you know crossing each other and then we flange them too so they're like kind of like going like wow as they pass each other um it's very Hendrixy, you know when you start panning stuff that's a Hendrixy thing so um So, yeah, I think you're spot on about Space Dog being like an Satriani Vi kind of a thing. Um, And. um, Oh, my light went out. Um, Hold on.
1: Brian, who would ever expect that we'd be talking Satriani
3: (laughs) with Andy? As we fix technical things. You know.
2: Well, you know you're all you are all things.
1: All right? things, all things, music. <laughs> and you let Mister Bonamassa know if you know if he ever wants to get and talk to two regular dudes in the number one blues and southern rock. Oh, podcast, I think he would. He I think certainly he would. can.
2: I think he would. All I can ask him.
1: Well, please yeah, do. I think <laughs> I have
2: to ask him. So, um, um, untitled. Did you say, Brian, what did you say on Title? Santana. Santana. Yeah. Um, I think Too Much to Give is a little more Santana than Untitled, but um, Santana was definitely an influence on me. And he's another guy who, you know, uh, like Samba Petit or Europa, you know, it's instrumental music and the guitar is like the voice, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a singer. So the guitar... So, you know, Carlos's style is very vocal. You know, it's a beautiful style way of presenting melodies, you know, um, in a very vocal-like way. So that was hugely influential on me, you know, when I was young. We played all those songs, you mm-hmm. know. Um, Samba Pati is a beautiful song. And so, yeah, it's definitely in there. Um, Untitled is a little more... Jazzy, you know, like, some of the lines come from... I studied with Pat Martino when I, when I was in my early <laughs> 20s. And... Um, uh, and maybe, like, um, some of the... You know, Steve Morse, Dixie Dregs or, like, progressive rock a little bit. Maybe even, like, yes, a little bit in the chord progressions and the arpeggiations. Um, and... And, you know, John McLaughlin is definitely mm-hmm. an influence, too. There's some fast licks in there that, you know, are inspired by that. And then Snowbird, you mentioned, like, a Grateful Dead thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think of it as the dead, but I know what you mean. Um, you know, Snowbird is slow. It's very dreamy, the first part of it anyway. And um, uh, and it's built off of acoustic guitars um, along with... Um, electric guitars, so, um, uh, it sort of, um, progresses as a piece of music, not unlike the Grateful Dead, and and it's very jammy, you know, like Dark Star or something, you know, it's just sort of very dreamy, but the chords, um, you know, when you hit those little bridge sections, those chords are complicated, (laughs) You know, they're more like jazz chords um, or jazzy sound. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's definitely more unusual. Uh, and, you know, like when you get to the end of the bridge sections in um, Snowbird, I play a B-flat with an A-bass, and it's very Spanish-sounding. Mm. Um, and then it resolves to A major. And that's, you know... Not unlike classical guitar, Spanish classical guitar music right. that mm-hmm. I also listened to and learned, tried to learn from when I was very young, listening to Segovia. Or there's a very famous piece of music by Rodrigo called Concerto de Aranjuez that you know any fan of classical guitar knows that piece. It's one of the most famous pieces ever. So you know, um, and then the song Wonder is called wonder because it was influenced by Stevie Wonder, you know. Ooh. Like I think it's sounds like a Stevie Wonder song. Little funk. Parts. No, it's not funky. It's um like a ballad. Like um like a Stevie Wonder ballad. Which one? Wonder? Wonder, the song Wonder. Yep, the third to the last one. Yeah,
1: okay. Right before Land of the Freaks.
2: Yeah. Wonder is almost all acoustics. Um But we did something really interesting on the bridge. The bridge goes way out there. Like, the chords get bizarre. And I didn't really have... Like, the song goes back, like, 20 years. Mm -hmm. The bridge was sort of this unfinished sort of mishmash. And then I knew it was going to go back to the first part, you know, to resolve. So in the studio, we sort of went, all right, let's, you know, whip this into shape. And I put some new acoustic guitars... Uh, and twelve-string acoustic on it, and then and it was very funny because it was like 30 in the morning, and we'd be going for like twelve hours. And I said to Bob, "You know, we were both like this, you know." And I go, "You don't have an electric sitar, do you?" And he's like, "Yeah, I do." <laughs> <laughs> but he was looking at me like, "No, no, like, we have to do this now, like." Now you want to put the electric sitar on at 1.30 in the morning You know, after 12. That's your
1: George Harrison influence.
2: After a 12-hour session. Well, there is electric sitar um, uh, on the Jeff Beck song. I think it's called I Can't Give Back the Love uh, You Gave to Me on uh, the Orange album. Jeff Beck Group Orange album so-called because there's a picture of an orange on the cover. And so he plays electric sitar on that song. And, um, yeah, I mean, the first time I heard that was an actual sitar, real sitar, um, you know, on um, um, Love You Too on Revolver, and then Within You and Without You on Sgt. Pepper. Um, So on the song Wonder, The Bridge, is a harmonized um, electric guitars. <laughs> it's it's really yeah. bizarre. I got as
1: soon as we're done with this, I'm gonna go listen to the song again. I got queue it queued up.
2: <laughs> and I even played the drone strings. I did this like arpeggiation on the drone strings. There's like 16 or 15 drone strings that are tuned half steps apart. So when you strum across all of them, it sounds totally bizarre. Does somebody
1: teach you how to play sitar, or just sit and
2: figure it out yourself? Well, I mean, the electric sitar is just a guitar. It's a guitar okay. that's modified to sound like a sitar. Okay, it's, okay. It's, you don't need to know anything, you know, different from playing a guitar. But the drone strings are bizarre, and so I did this arpeggiation. I just picked like, and the strings are like a millimeter apart. So it was yeah. hard to do. So I just pick like the first one, the sixth one, and then the second one and the ninth one. I went like, ding, ding, dong, ding, 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 like this. And I said to Bob, I go, I want it to sound like you're in a, you know, a, uh, incense filled room and people smoking hookahs and you're like separating the, <laughs> yeah. bead, the bead curtains, you know, that's what I want it to sound like. And so it kind of sounds like that, um, Uh, One of the things with Snowbird, to go back there just for a second, is it's a nine and a half minute song and at Mm -hmm. a seven minute point, all of a sudden it stops and then it goes into like a double time and then electric guitar comes in like loud and super distorted and heavy. And so the song originally went from that slow part to a tempo part with vocals and lyrics but I decided to um, keep it instrumental and change that melody. But, you know, the melody, I just remembered the melody in um, Snowbird. I had played. There's a place called Snowbird in Utah. Um, mm-hmm. oh, you ski, know it. isn't it? Yes. yes. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I used yes, to sir. ski. I've never been there, but I used to ski out west. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Snowbird. I used to go
1: with Joe Perry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, a,
2: he's a big skier. uh and so we had come back from snowbird uh we played a show out there and went back to his house and at that time uh, i was always staying in his guest house on his property this beautiful guest house and i woke up it was like the next day and i woke up at like five in the morning and i've never had this feeling before now dickie is part native american right he has Native American stuff everywhere, all over the place. Did,
1: did he marry a Native American woman he at one did. point? Yeah, something? yeah, 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 yeah. Zant, yeah. Sandy
2: Blue Sky. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. He wrote blue, blue Sky about her. Yeah, of course. Blue, blue Sky yep. was her Indian yep. Indian name, and um, so, you know, his great grandmother, grandmother was uh, Native American, and so there's a lot of Native American stuff around. Anyway, I woke up at five a.m. and. I've never had this feeling. I felt like there was like a presence floating above me that you know you couldn't see. This feeling. And then this melody was just there. Like the melody of Snowbird was just there, like in the air. And so I would started singing it so I wouldn't forget it. And picked up a guitar. And that's why the song's called Snowbird, because we had just come back from playing there but it's got a native american vibe to me you know
3: another question i have uh, when you're talking earlier about sequencing do you take different passes at it or do you go this is the opener uh, you know how does that come out i i heard charlie Starr from blackberry smoke once say that he would do it by you don't want to have each song in the same one song following each other in the exact same key but but how'd that work for you for sequencing and well, know, is it one try or is it different and then you get settled on one thing?
2: Uh, you know, the, each case is a little different. But what happened with this one, because I was so I was very aware that sequencing was going to be really important and that I had a variety of, you know, music in terms of styles. And I was sending songs to Brad Talinsky, who was the editor in chief of Guitar World for 30 years, and he's a good friend. And he was like, oh, the listeners are going to get whiplash because it's too different. You know, like, the songs are too different from each other. You know, how are they going to work on the same album? But my um, template in mind was the White Album by the Beatles. It's a double album, Mm -hmm. and it has a lot of different stuff on it. You know, it's got Helter Skelter. It's got Long, Long, Long. It's got Why Don't We Do It in the Road." It's got Julia. It's got um, Happiness is a warm gun. It's got um, While my guitar gently weeps, Martha, my dear, like Revolution yeah. number nine. <laughs> you know, the White Album does take you on quite a journey, and they did a phenomenal job sequencing that record. You know, I, I you can't even imagine it sequenced a different way. So. Just having that in mind helped me in terms of having just a sensibility toward moving through these different modes. And um, so I had a sequence, and then I just changed the position of two songs from my uh, original sequence. So it was really, it was like 98% there from the beginning. I knew I was going to open with Light of Love. And it was the title track, and that was the name of the album. Mm -hmm. Because it was the most important song to me. And it was one of the oldest songs. And to me, it sets the tone for the record in a lot of ways. Um, Because it's a song. You know what I mean? Like the song thing, as opposed to you know, a blues song with me playing a million fancy-ass riffs. I like that, too. (laughs) But the song thing was important to me. And... um, You know, and it's interesting, Brad also said to me, when I asked him what he thought of the sequencing, he said, I could see why you did it, but you put, like, the song thing is, like, the first six songs. You know, there's great Mm -hmm. guitar playing, he thought, but it's more about the songs. Right. And he's like, don't you think you should have put one of those hot-ass guitar songs, like, you know, sooner? And You know, I got I understand his point, but I don't know what to say. You know, I feel like I'm a child of the Beatles. Well,
1: it's that double album vibe. You got kind of light and dark, or whatever. You know, you got the lighter, more musical, then you go into your heavier blues and rock songs.
2: Well, and I'll tell you another thing. Like my, I'm not like um, a Zeppelin guy in terms of being a Zeppelin fanatic. But I love Physical Graffiti. That's oh, my, that's best my, album! Yeah, that's my favorite. That's their best album. album. Yeah, and it's a double album, and it does the same thing. That's there what see.
1: Some, that's what I was thinking.
2: Yes, there are so many amazing songs on Physical Graffiti. There's no shortage of no, fucking phenomenal no, songs.
1: No, no fat on that double album.
2: No, I mean, and we used to play them all. You know, Custard Pie is a great oh, opener. God, what a it, fun.
1: Just yeah, a fun rock and roll song. Yeah.
2: they get to get it out of the way first. And then what's the second song? The Rover, which Rover. is like yeah. unbelievable. And we played that all the time too. That's my favorite, probably my favorite Zeppelin song ever. Is it really the Rover? It's so cool, man. It's like Jimmy Page, it, you know, um, you know, for me personally, just as a straight guitar player and not, you'll understand what I mean. You know, he's not, on the level of Hendrix or Jeff, right. but I don't think that was his interest anyway. His interests were more than just being a great guitar player, which he was. Like, if you listen to Since I've Been Loving You, that's oh, some of the greatest, it's my favorite Zep song. Yeah, that's, that's you know, to me, his best guitar playing ever did. But you know, The Stairway to Heaven Soul is not too bad either. No, not too but, bad. Um, but, um, I think he was just as interested in writing, like intriguing music and arranging it and producing it. Exactly. And, yes. And so the rover, like when you get to that um, little bridge, boom, boom, but um, boom, 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 it goes boo doo bap, boo doo bap, boo doo bap, boo doo bap, like. It's almost like a horn line, Mm -hmm. you know, a counter melody under Robert's vocal and then weaved in with the chords. It's just perfect.
1: (laughs) Jimmy and Robert always worked in unison well together, replicating the guitar a little bit with Robert's doing. You know, that's one of the things I was always cool about, Zeppelin. You had those songs where they were sort of playing off
2: each other. Very much so. And I think it works. Maybe physical graffiti is the best example of it. Yeah. You know, like you think of a song like Cashmere, you know, Yep. the melodies that Robert sings and then the melodies that Jimmy adds over and under or Ten Years Gone. It's oh, like, I love that song. Completely <laughs> ridiculous. So great riff. So, you know, the and there's a lot of acoustic guitars like, um, you know, when Zeppelin 3 came out, <laughs> there were people that criticized it. Oh, this why is there so much acoustic guitar? But I loved. Okay, you've got tangerine. You've got these... That's tunes. the way Brony, tangerine. That's the way yeah. Brian Yar. Oh man! So why it's tune is very influenced by Brian Yar. You know, like just I can solo. hear it. Oh, definitely solo acoustic guitar, and um, and I always loved that he just recorded that on his front lawn. Like you can hear planes flying over. Like it's like. there's a lot that's messed up about that recording and the same thing with Wyatt's tune. It was a one taker. There's a lot of finger squeaking and it has its, you know, warts and all, but so does brawn. that's part of what I love about Mm brawn. So, um,
3: uh,
2: uh, I forgot what my point was going to (laughs) be.
1: We got on Led Zeppelin tangent and then I got really excited. Sorry. No, 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 it's fine.
2: So, well, it's a whole like well, Zeppelin 3, Zeppelin 3 yeah. you know. But I mean, Zeppelin 3 has since I've been loving you, and it's got um, immigrant song it, the, immigrant to kick song. off the album. Super yeah. heavy, super heavy. Um, but um, what is it? Um, Out on the Tiles. What's the one mm-hmm. that goes bump, bump, bump? That's not Out on the Tiles. What's the name of that song? On Three. No, it's on... Um, uh, physical, physical Graffiti? Physical Graffiti. Um, No, I ain't talking about love.
3: Trampled dun, dun, underfoot. Dun, 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 dun. Trampled underfoot. Oh, trampled
1: underfoot. <laughs> there you go. It's got the good yeah, keys yeah, in it. Great. Yeah,
2: yeah. There you go. Thank how you, great, Yeah,
1: how great is that? Yeah.
2: How, how great? It's like, a, it's like a phenomenally great.
1: <laughs> it is. John and Paul you know, Jones gets a, gets gets a little front and center on some and of that,
2: and the drumming like it's wow. it's just so
1: them right? You can't what a band
2: those guys were something else. So you know all of these things, you know they're they're all uh, influences on me. You know they're great influence. They're, they're, I mean, you can't have better influences to me than Hendrix and Cream and the Beatles and Zeppelin and no. uh, the Almond Brothers and uh, Johnny Winter and Jeff Beck and Santana. You know. Um one of the comments that I've gotten is people have said, Wow, this you know this sounds like really authentic to music, you know, from the late sixties and early seventies And I say, Yeah, because I'm old.
1: <laughs>
2: that was my influence. That's when I started playing. <laughs> you know. That's the, this is what I know, you know, like I mean that's, that's what I grew up with. <laughs>
1: Is there one track on here that you're just... Like, this is the one. This is the best thing I've ever done. Oh, wow. Well, you know... Like, if I had to stop making music right now, this is the track that's
2: going to... That I'd want people to listen to? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to sound a little crazy, but Buried Somerville. Because Buried Somerville really has everything in it, including the kitchen sink. You know, it's very... Beatles like, and the Beatles were really, really important to me. Yeah, and like I said, it came out of a dream. You know, it was right. Paul McCartney was playing piano and singing, and singing these exact, singing these exact words and this melody, like exact. And I, it was the last dream I had before I woke up, so it was really clear.
3: That's amazing. You remember remember something from because normally you
2: don't remember your dreams very clearly at all. Well, I got to tell you that from doing it. I've gotten better and better over the years at, at remembering the music in my dreams. And so now I have a lot of songs that came right out of dreams. Um, when you wake up, you have to be really careful in um, capturing it, finding it. Because if you just pick up the guitar and start to play, it'll just sort of fall apart and dissipate. And it's gone. So it's very fragile at first, hanging on to like these threads of a... Impression or or something, but I've gotten better at it, and I know Paul McCartney's talked about that too. You know, we know he dreamt yesterday, um, so I would pick Barry Somerville because it's got the Beatles thing. It's very weird, you know, like the chord progressions is unusual, but it's very hooky, super pop, mm-hmm. really, extremely pop. There's vocal harmonies. The bridge is also you know, what the Beatles always said, a bridge should be a song and a song. You know, it should be the other side of the story. You know, the flip side of the same story and then it brings you back. And um, the bridge is very much like Squeeze to me. The band Squeeze, mm-hmm. who were clearly influenced by the Beatles too. Mm-hmm. And But then it goes into this acoustic finger-picking thing that's almost like James Taylor or you know, Michael Hedges or something, followed by something that sounds like Queen, where it's like this super heavy with overdubbed, like four overdubbed super loud guitars through Marshalls. And then the outro solo is my Strat on an in-between uh, pickup uh, position, and I was trying to sound like Clapton on his first solo album. You know, that's the tone. So that song has a lot. <laughs> A lot in it that to me, you know, represents things I like.
1: I'm gonna have to listen to that again and break it
2: down. I've been listening to your album
1: all day and last couple days as well, and it's it's there's a there is it's really cool. There's a lot of different dynamics and things in, and I I mean, it's great if you like guitar. This is a good album to get and listen to because there's a lot of different guitar things going on.
2: And you know, having double trouble on there, you know, it's not awful. it's not awful. Um, I mean, it, you know, they had, I mean, I think it's the first thing that's come out with the two of them playing together in like 18 years or something. So it's wow. very unique. Yeah. Because they stopped recording together around 18 years ago. So, um, and I like it a lot. You know, I feel like it's just, you know, you uh, know, the Johnny Winter track, Be Careful with a Fool, which is totally live in the studio, you know, it's just him singing and playing his ass off. The inspiration of that is in that song. Or Hendrix, like, you know, Red House, because Red House was totally live in the studio. You know, it's just him singing and playing. You could tell mm-hmm. it's just the guitar and voice. It's one, one of my community. favorite Hendrix tracks. Oh, God, yeah. You know, it's just the voice and guitar are totally married. But we should tell people, so the album, Light of Love, it's on all the streaming services. It's on iTunes and Spotify. Um, it's getting added to more playlists on Spotify, which is cool. Um, and if anybody wants to buy one, you can either uh, you know, get it as a digital download through those streaming services. Or if they want a real one, an actual CD, I'd be happy to personalize it for them and uh, mail it to them. Um, it's $20 plus $5 for postage. And my joke is that I should sell CD players with the CD because you know, nobody has CD players. <laughs> they're very hard to come by. Cars don't even have oh, I had, I had one. I have one in my car. <laughs> in the car, that's the place. But it's like, buy my CD, get a free CD player. <laughs> you
1: can listen to it. CD players might be cheaper than CDs one day. I'll, there was an article that just came out about CDs made a big comeback.
2: Well, you know what's funny is that we discovered... We had been listening to the music for so long in the studio, just, you know, on the hard drives and making it sound as good as we could make it sound. And then when the CD showed up, we put the CD in in the studio and the CD sounded different and different in a good way. Yeah. Like really punchy and lots of presence. And we think it's because the converters in a CD player are different you know, those lasers, than listening to a wave file on a computer. It's just sure. different. There's yeah, sure. There's different about it. And then, of course, the car is the best place, always. Always.
1: Best place to listen to music, a podcast, whatever.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, hey, um, to get a hold of you for a physical CD, how do we do that? Well, you could just, uh, you could hit me up, me slash andyalladort, one word. Um, and you can, um, send me 25 bucks. Like I said, 20, it's a double disc. So 20 bucks, $5 for postage. That's the easiest way, but God. you know, I'm on Facebook, just Andy Alador or Andy Aladort music. I have a few different pages and everything's the same. My Twitter is Andy Alador, and mm-hmm. My Instagram's Andy Alldort. When's the last
1: time you got suspended
2: on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> it's probably
1: been since, since the
2: <laughs> election. I have never, no, 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 no. I forgot. I got suspended on Twitter once. Yes, 20, you did. For 24 hours. You remember that? I remember that. I forgot. That was the only time. 24 hours.
1: <laughs> we, I don't see those days happening anymore. We won't get into the details. But I ah, you
2: know what? It's good to be busy um, <laughs> talking to lovely, wonderful people like you about music. <laughs> people who love music and you know, your hearts and heads are in the right place. I would rather do that. You know, We'd rather we're rather going to go positive. Out, We're going to go out and do some record release gigs. At All right, okay. Stores we have one coming up uh, for anybody who's you know on Long Island, um, January twenty ninth in Seville, from three to six p.m. in the afternoon, at a, a record store called Better Nature Records. The owner's going to do an interview with me for a ha- uh, an hour, and then the band's going to play five or six songs from the new record. And you posted on- that on Facebook, if I recall. That's been up there, and I'm going to continue to post that. And then we'll, you know, we'll continue to do, um, uh, you know, record release gigs. But I would be remiss if I did not bring up. You guys may know that I have a band. One mm-hmm. of my bands is called Friends of the Brothers. Yep. With alumni from the Alumni Brothers. That's
1: why I wore my brother's shirt tonight, Andy. Even from though it's not, the,
2: it's Friends of the Brothers. It's just the Brothers. That's just The Brothers. That was from, from that specific show. That was like Correct. right at the start of COVID. COVID that yeah. was March 10th, 2020. Um, so, Friends of the Brothers, uh, we just got picked up by um, CJ Strock and Mint Talent, and they booked Blackberry Smoke.
1: Oh,
2: and, yeah. And so we're, as a band, very excited and happy that Mint Talent is representing us now. So, Hopefully, as we reach the spring and the summer, you know, COVID will start to recede. And I think, you know, CJ's looking at Peach Fest and he's looking at... Oh, yeah. Wow, oh, nice. nice. That's Pennsylvania, right? Scranton, yeah. Scranton, yeah, and, yeah. And, um, but they're, you know, they've taken us on as an artist and, um, you know, I can be happier about that. and And, you know, it's really a wonderful thing to go out and play this music, you know, with such amazing musicians, First everybody Mm -hmm. in the band is phenomenal. And then we get to play all Almond Brothers music that people love and um, we'll mix it up in that band, you know, we'll play Revival and um, you know, Can't Lose What You Never Had and uh, you know, we'll we'll play some that people don't play all the time. Sometimes we play uh, Lone Me a Dime, just because uh, Dwayne with um, Bosquex. um, So, anyway, so Friends of the Brothers got signed by Mint Talent, and we're going to start to do stuff. And I played with Charlie Starr for the first I met him for the first time and played with him. Where um, was that at? It was January 9th, maybe, um, at the Beacon Theater. Uh, Devin Allman and Dwayne were doing what they call the Allman Family Reunion,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that tour. And had all kinds of great people on it, Jimmy Hall and Robert Randolph and Lily Hyatt and um, uh, Donovan Frankenreiter. And, um, anyway, Charlie was there. Oh, uh, Luther and Cody Dickinson.
3: Nice. And
2: so at the Beacon Show, Charlie was there, and it's the first time I ever met him. You know, I just heard wonderful things about him for years from so many people. And he's the best, you know. He's just the sweetest guy. Mm-hmm. It was really, really nice to meet him. He and, was on the uh, podcast right before Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, he was
1: great. Brian and Brian he,
2: snagged him. He did a good job. And he co-wrote um, the opening track on um, Joe Bonamassa's new album.
1: Really?
3: Oh, no shit. Okay. Yeah, I did not, not realize the song, that.
2: The song Notches, uh, Charlie and Joe wrote together. Right on. Yeah. Killer. Well, it's all great stuff, man. And thank yeah. both you guys, really. It's so appreciated. It's terrific that you're doing what you do and highlighting music you love because there's so many people that love it, too. And I thank you for helping get the word out about my record. And, um, uh, you know, hopefully I'll uh, get people listening to it and, um, you know, getting to hear it.
1: For sure. For sure. And we're going to promote the hell out of you being on the podcast and all your, uh, you know, Light of Love album, everything that you're going to do, we'll make sure we do it. And I just want to thank you for being patient with us while we rescheduled this a couple of times and just, you know, being a good friend of the
2: podcast.
3: Thank you so much for being flexible and understanding. And you're a great guy, man. Well, uh, glad to be here talking to you.
2: I'll never forgive you.
3: If we so show the, up to, uh, when we show the
1: show, he's going to point us out in the audience. We, those assholes over there. We, we, couldn't, be, we, we couldn't
3: be. unforgiven by a better person. <laughs> <laughs> True.
2: <laughs> well, that's it. Now, now I for now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> killing me with kindness. No, in all seriousness, you guys are the best, and I I really appreciate it. Thank um, you. It's my pleasure. It's it's wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to you guys. You know, you guys. It's this. You know, anything that is a uh, labor of. love you know, this is, you're doing this because you love this music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of like-minded people.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: We found that out. There's a lot of really good bands in this genre. Like it's, and people want to hear the music. They just need to have somebody point them in the right direction.
2: Exactly. So uh, thank you for what you do. And thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. Anytime, man. Anytime, tell Mr. Bonamassa, tell Joe to get on here i will I'll, i'm gonna
1: and the other right joe away.
3: joe perry <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: he remembers me from skiing together come on <laughs> well
3: so to the perry. listeners it's thank funny. you so much to andy eldord uh for being on here light of love is the record the double record get it listen to it love it it's awesome you love it you love thank it. thank you thank you so much andy thank you guys you're the best thanks again to andy eldord for joining us once again uh you know you could ask me what the salient points are and i could keep talking all night like andy can but um we told you in the intro uh who andy gave some lessons to and i can't believe it
1: i mean when you get a phone call and say hey this is joe perry what what else are you gonna do brian
3: (laughs) you know and i forgot (laughs) to ask andy like in a situation like that you got two like incredibly awesome guitar players does then andy Pick up something from Joe and ask Joe questions about. (laughs)
1: You know what? That's that's an interesting question. And I think when Andy comes back on, I know we've already talked to Andy a little bit about having to come back for just a chat session. We should bring that up to him. Like when you're teaching people, are you learning from them as well? Or is it just straight lessons?
3: Yeah, for sure.
1: But uh, always great stories. You know, we talked about his album, going in detail this album and stuff started from the nineties all the way to recent, you know, the people we played with who are who um, played piano and keys on the album who have been in deep purple and done other, like the dude knows everybody. Um, his friends, you'll hear about all his legendary guitar player friends that have made comments on the album. It's uh, you know, being a guitar player, Brian, it's like, being in heaven when he's on talking about stuff mm-hmm. i just it's some of my favorite favorite stuff that we do
3: and uh, i like thinking who knows more people is it andy or is it fab grassy knows right? more I think, it, you don't know, the <laughs> same amount and the same guys
1: for that matter <laughs> i think those i think they have to know each other i you know what are the odds that they don't know each other
3: Probably, I mean, probably not much
1: no Speaking of Fab, though, real fast, he is just getting over COVID. He's doing okay. He got through it. I think he and his wife, but uh, best wishes to Fab. I'm glad he's out recovering. If he's listening to the podcast, I saw he posted and I sent him a chat.
3: Yeah. yeah. You know, and we were chatting just a little bit with Andy, and then I came up with the idea of, you know, we're about due for another guitarist special. What a treat would be to like, Andy and Greg Martin, Charlie Starr, JD Simo. JD <laughs> Simo.
1: I mean, we would just sit and just listen there's not really anything we'd have to say and it would be completely amazing
3: or no, that's not something we have lined up for the listeners but no. uh, if we're going to dream we're going to dream big
1: well one of Andy's <laughs> best friends or friends is Joe Bonamassa as you guys heard yeah. and like you know what maybe we can get Joe to come on and then he can come back for a guitar special himself well
3: Andy seemed to think so that Joe would probably do it and then when he said Joe and I'm like what about Joe Perry
1: <laughs> <laughs> we take we'll take any Joe Satriani, another one of his friends. Any of the Joes that play guitar, yeah. bring them on.
3: If you're gonna give us an inch, we'll take a mile or try yeah. to.
1: <laughs> we can have a Joe guitar special, Joe Bonamassa, Joe Perry, and Joe Satriani.
3: There you go. The G3 guitar uh The All Things episode. Blues
1: and Southern Rock G three summit.
3: <laughs> isn't always but isn't that always Satriani and Steve Vai though? It's Vi Satriani.
1: Else? Uh, yeah. Yep, but it's always Vi and Satriani. I'm pretty sure.
3: Like Zach Wilds played it, hasn't he? Mm-hmm.
1: I believe Zach Wilds playing, it. and I think Jeff Beck has maybe been a part of that before, like a whole slew of, yeah. slew of people. So
3: is Neil uh, Bedingfield on that
1: on that tour? I don't think so. No. It's speaking of like crazy guitar stuff. I just <laughs> we're now we're, we're now we're now we're getting away, but I ran into I was watching random music videos on YouTube. You know how it always like just automatically mm. just keeps playing stuff. Ingwe J. Malmsteen's Rising Force came on and yeah. I watched the video and I'm like, man, you know what? I, I make fun of Ingwe a little bit because he, he gets a little out there, but their mm-hmm. Rising Force had some pretty good songs.
3: Well, I mean, coincidentally, like I keep seeing the videos coming up of, I don't know if it's the current G3 tour or the last one. It's like him and Steve Vai on stage together playing one of Ingwe's songs that I can't remember off the top of my head even steve I is saying it was challenging to oh i'm sure
1: dude the dude is like he's his own animal right and sometimes when you play so many notes per second or whatever it gets i i get a little like that's not necessarily me but dude's awesome and uh, that rising force album had some good good tracks on it
3: and you know here we are we're talking about shredders on a blues and southern rock show but hey that's okay well i'm sure there's some sort of blues influence in there somewhere
1: Of course there is. Come on, man. Remember the the 80s movie Crossroads with Ralph Macchio? He duels with the devil's disciple at the end of that. And guess who plays the devil's disciple? Do you remember? Yeah, Steve I. Steve I. You know, and I honestly
3: have never seen it. I've just heard about it so much.
1: (laughs) It is. um, It's not a great movie, but (laughs) as a relic of the time, it's just fine.
3: I mean, does it like, does it follow that actual, you know, fable or story or urban legend? What do you ever want to call it? Is, mm, I'm sure it's yeah. a take off Robert Johnson, except for with Shredders or what?
1: Uh, well, Ralph Macchio is a blues guitar player. He plays a okay. telly and he plays mostly in, with a slide. So it's like he's playing slide stuff. Steve I is doing Shredder stuff at the end while they're dueling. Yeah, there is a clip of that that duel on YouTube. Just listen, just go check that clip out. You don't need to see the rest of the movie.
3: So now that just remind me of something else, because I'd like to, I, I should check that out and see, like, who who did the music on that? Steve, I, or, like, with the blue stuff, was there somebody who's actually playing that? Oh, right, what?
1: who's doing all the stuff? I am not sure. That is a really, really good question. we we'll the research that and come back next time and give all of our listeners that answer.
3: Isn't there a movie called Black Snake Moan?
1: Yeah, Sam but Jackson's in Sam, that one.
3: Well, that I know for sure. Uh, Luther and Cody and and Kenny Brown did the music for that.
1: Yeah, that takes place in Mississippi with the next blues player gets back into playing blues. It's a it's a weird movie too. Christina Ricci, mostly known from the Adams Family movies as Wednesday Adams, is also in that. And Justin Timberlake plays her abusive military boyfriend. Oh, really? Yeah, hmm. it's a it's a
3: pretty decent movie. Yeah. Pretty decent movie. Yeah. Better movie than yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, you know, I don't. I, I've seen Cadillac Records, but I don't yeah. know if I've seen Black Snake Moan. If I've seen part of it, I think like a, I think a friend of mine he burned a lot of DVDs, and I think that one didn't play. That's why I'm not quite familiar with that. Okay. I probably started it, and it didn't keep playing. I
1: think it periodically shows up on streaming stuff. So if you ever have yeah. streaming services, you get to probably pop up. I mean, it's right. You know, Sam Jackson's always good, and it's kind of interesting to see uh, Justin Timberlake be uh, actually, you know anti who he typically plays mm-hmm. and Christina Ricci's a good actress so
3: well we got from shredders to blues players and i'm feeling Ruby kind Raiders. of like uh, a <laughs> superman with this merch that that jen sent and that's a good turning of the tide today so with that always remember southern rock is reverent blues is blood we'll see you next time <laughs>